So our first reading, which is from Exodus chapter 19 on page 76, starting at verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And now we'll turn to Titus. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is God's word. Thank you, Emma. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. My name's Pete Snow. I'm an assistant minister here. Um, it's nice to meet some visitors already this morning. I'd love to meet you also afterwards, if I never have, maybe at the church picnic in the park. Uh, this uh, short but dense and brilliant passage in Titus is where we're going to spend a few moments together this morning. So if you keep that open, then we can begin in prayer. Gracious God, our, our God and Saviour, we come to you this morning needing your grace. And uh, we pray that as we read these words about your grace to us in Jesus Christ, you would please, um, for each one of us, transform us and change us and set our eyes on him. Amen. Let me tell you a story about when I was a young and inexperienced pastor. Some of you think I'm a very young and inexperienced pastor now. You should have seen me five years ago. I was in a church and um, there was, at the time, there was one particular person who was vexing me as a pastor, causing me trouble because they they were... there was an immoral issue in their lives and they were refusing to change and I was really annoyed about it and I thought, how can you keep coming to church and not change? 
And I remember going to my boss at the time and saying, what am I going to do about this person who is immoral and says they're a Christian but doesn't want to change and doesn't listen to anything I say? And um, in all my frustration, he very calmly said, Peter, sit down. And he turned to Titus chapter 2 and he read these verses. I remember it very vividly. Titus 2, 11 to 14. He read to me about the grace of God appearing and how it teaches people. And he said, let me tell you what I've learned over several years in ministry. You can't force people to do anything. But the more you tell them about the grace of God, Jesus Christ and the cross, that's when people change. I've never forgot it. And that logic applies to anybody stuck in any sin who wants to change. The more... The more I tell you, the more you tell yourself, the more you appreciate and love the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's when change comes. And that's what I've got to tell you this morning. You see how the passage ends. Just look at verse 14, if you would. The paragraph, at least. This is how it ends. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, and these are the last words in this big, long Greek sentence in this paragraph, eager to do what is good. You see that? Eager to do what is good. I'm going to make a charitable assumption and assume you're a bit like me, and you're not always eager to do what is good. So you don't always get to the end of the chain and think, terrific, I'm here to do what is good. Can't wait to get out there and fight sin and do some charity work and go and help some people. I'm not always living in that state. And don't always get to the end of the paragraph. But if we follow the logic through, it is possible, says Paul, says the Bible, says God, to get to the end of the chain if I'm so taught by grace that I will actually become, over time, eager to do what is good. Christians actually in history have been really, really good at showing this in practice. I don't think they've always realized wonderfully how good they were. I love the story of the um, of the. Of the Roman Christians in Rome in, in the year 251 AD. Because a great big plague broke out that was killing people. We're told at one stage 5,000 people a day were dying of the plague in Rome. 5,000 a day in a city. And the doctors, the ancient doctors, didn't know what to do. And the nobles, they didn't know what to do. So they just left. The doctors and the nobles and the Senate, they fled the city and they, they went away somewhere because they knew that the one thing we can do is get away from this plague. And the Christians are the ones who stayed. And they buried the dead. And apparently they fed 1,500 people a day at some stage because there was no food anywhere. And they were just giving food to the people. I don't suppose they quite realized what they were doing at the time. But you see, they, gosh, they were eager to do what is good. They saw the opportunity. They took it. A church I worked at here in London in the, in the 21st century, uh, there, was an, there was an eagerness to do what is good where they ran a, ran a pregnancy crisis clinic where if you got pregnant in the neighborhood, didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what you'd done, you could come and get some free advice on what to do with your pregnancy. And there was another um, ministry that was run by the church where there was debt counseling and no matter how big a debt you were in, no matter how many credit cards you'd racked up, it was possible to come and get free debt advice. And we used to go around um, and knock on the doors every so often in the, in the neighborhood and we'd give out Christmas carol flyers and say, look, do you want to come, come to a Christmas carol service? And not always, but every so often someone would open the door and say, oh, you're from that church. 
oh, well, look, I've heard about the good that you guys have been doing. And, um, yeah, to be honest, that, that makes me much more inclined to come along to your carol service. I see that there's an eagerness to do what is good in you. That's just, that's out there in the community, okay? That's the very laudable stuff that we might look up to. But inside a human being, have you ever known someone totally transformed in this way? I have. I've seen people who, before, it was like the Bible was a totally dead book to them. It was like it was the most boring thing in the world. And then something happens, something external seems to happen to them, and it's like they're devouring this book. It's not a dead book, it's a, a devoured book that they have an appetite for. I've seen someone so eaten up with bitterness that it's basically all they can talk about, their anger at a certain person in life. And then something external happens to them so that they're transformed and gradually that tide of bitterness just recedes and they're actually able to begin to pray for the person and even to love them and speak kind words to them. I've seen a guy, a friend of mine, who was um, in a sexual relationship with his girlfriend at university and then something external happened to him and I remember him describe it as immediately becoming celibate. I've seen someone who was sent to prison And then something external to do with the grace of God happened to them in prison. And I remember watching him a week after he'd been released from prison, getting baptized with an electronic tag around his ankle, which he couldn't get wet. So he was having to get baptized like this as he dunked himself into the tank. Because something had happened to those people, that man and the rest of them, that I don't think you can explain any other way than by the grace of God. It was teaching them, you see. In every case, it was teaching them to to be eager to do what is good. What? does that in a person because if you've got any sort of personal track record you know how hard it is to change try and change a habit oh my goodness it must be something either so sudden or so deep that it's clearly not them and the the answer that we get in our passages is the two appearings of Jesus Christ So we've got two points this morning and they're two appearings of Jesus Christ. I'm going to try and describe them to you. They're foundational. I suspect you'll have heard them before and yet there's nothing changing them and there's no getting away from them. The two appearings of Jesus Christ. That is, you need to know the grace of God so deeply that it changes you forever. Look, so verse 11. Here's the first appearing. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. You see, so first mention of the word appearance. That's talking about the incarnation. The grace of God has appeared in it offers salvation. That's our first point. And the second appearing comes in verse 13. Do you see? While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's talking about the return of Jesus, the second appearing, the second coming. First coming, incarnation, second coming, return. Make sense? And the passage is structured around those two appearings, two things that Christians are, well, one of them they've seen, one of them they're waiting for. My Christian life, as it were, is lived between those two events. I am pushed from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. I'm pushed by the grace of God towards the second great event which I'm waiting for, which is the appearing of his glory. I'm waiting for the glory of God to appear. Interestingly, that's described as Jesus Christ in this passage. And it is, as, as it were, I am pulled towards that event you see pushed by grace pulled by glory towards those two things and if I'm a believer a Christian believer who trusts Christ then in a wonderful way I cannot get out of that track I am pushed one way pulled another way and that's the road I'm on 
Contrast that, if you would, with the Cretan way of life. We know Titus was a letter written to a pastor in Crete in the Mediterranean. And there are some pretty negative things to say about the Cretan lifestyle. Lifestyle. Chapter 1, we're told that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. It is, as it were, a Cretan is not here on this track. They are meandering through life, lying to one person, being an evil brute to another person, being a lazy glutton to another person. You see this lifestyle, it sort of meanders from one thing to another, no reliable moral compass, nothing to tell me which way to go in life, being cruel to one person, perhaps managing to do good to another person, but there's nothing guiding me, there's nothing pushing me that way and pulling me another way towards heaven. Paul says that the grace of God so educates me that I'm, I realize where I am and where I'm going. Today's passage is the heart of this whole letter, which is all about that, the truth, about the track that I'm on and the godliness that it leads to. And this is really the densest part, particularly verse 14, which we'll get to, the densest part of the letter, the heart of it all, about the truth that drives godliness. So as I said, I just want to outline these two points with you. The the push from grace, because grace has appeared, firstly, and then the pull towards glory, because glory will appear, secondly. Okay. Firstly, grace has appeared. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And we'll pause there. Grace has appeared. Grace, as Andy said uh, uh, earlier, is God giving us what we don't deserve. It is undeserved kindness. And in particular, there's two things that grace does, two sub-points here. It offers salvation, you see, in verse 11, and it teaches us, verse 12. Jesus offers salvation and Jesus teaches us. Firstly, he offers salvation I think usually, if we're, if we're Protestant believers, we're quite good at remembering this. Jesus offers me salvation, that is, I, I get to be forgiven. I get my, my wrath removed from God because Jesus takes it away from me. Um, I, I get a ticket to heaven and I get my passport stamped. That's an offer of salvation, which we're told is for all people. By the way, I'd love you to know that this morning. If you're visiting to church, you've hardly been for years. Jesus offers salvation to all people, whoever you are, whatever you've done. It's the scandal of grace. It's for you and for all of us. But we're often quite good at remembering that bit. Thank you very much, Jesus. Thank you for the ticket. I'm on my way. Thank you. I'll take the, I'll take the ticket from where you appeared in your incarnation. I'll take that from the cross. I'm on my way. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye. You see, we're good at remembering that half, I think. Not so good at remembering verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jesus also teaches us Think of, if you would, the best teacher you ever had. I've asked some of you to do this before, but think of your best ever teacher from school or whatever context you like. Um, Close your eyes if you like, you don't have to. Um, Think of their face if you can remember it. Um, Think of their name. Think of mine. Um, That person, I'm assuming, if they were a good teacher, the best one, they were not content to leave you the way you are. Yes? It's kind of what makes a teacher so good. They, they, they saw me the way I was and they thought, I've got stuff to teach you. I want to make you different. I've got a trajectory for your life that I want to put you on. 
Grace has come to be your best ever teacher. So if you think that person was good, you should see the way God teaches and the way Jesus teaches and God's grace teaches you. Grace has appeared and he, and it, and, and he Jesus Christ, has walked into the classroom and picked up the chalk and he's ready to teach us. I really like the way one of the old poets put it, a man called William Cooper, a famous English poet, and he talked about the school of grace. He's got a line in one of his poems. He says, I taught in my Saviour's school of grace. That's exactly this. I, a Christian believer, taught in my Saviour's school of grace. All believers are enrolled in the school. No one has graduated. There isn't a person in this room who's a grace graduate. And um, you see, Jesus not only offers me salvation, he not only pushes me from, from grace of the incarnation, but he pulls me towards glory, teaching me all about it as I go. In particular, do you see the things that he teaches? Verse 12. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. Ungodliness is the word that Paul uses when he wants to describe swapping God for something less glorious. It's a Romans 1, 19 word where he says, you, you've, you've done a bad trade here. Uh, and then worldly passions plunging after something that my heart desires because I'm so caught up in the moment. No to those things. Yes, he says, to self-controlled, upright and godly lives. That is, self-controlled, how I relate to me. Upright lives, that is, how I relate to other people. And godly lives, that is, how I relate to God. No to those things. Yes to those things. I'm not even going to dwell on verse 12 much more than that because we, if you were with us last week, it's a pretty punchy passage in the start of the chapter, Titus 2, 1 to 10, which outlines those things in greater detail. And if you were here, we went through uh, men and women and employees and pastors and young and old and we saw in greater depth what those things mean. So I can't give it more time this Sunday. In short, it sort of tells you what to do in all sorts of situations in life. If you've got a bottle in your hand and you're tempted to drink, if you've got a baby in your hand and you're tempted to be angry or resentful, if you've got a boss on your hands and you're finding it hard, all those sorts of things we, we looked at last week. Should have been here. And um, that's a joke. Well, you should have actually. Yeah. Um, what is clear, though, is that grace teaches us this way of life, do you see? He gave us the lifestyle description, and now he says this is the engine. You want to do that? Let me tell you about the engine that makes it possible. Grace has appeared. And just by the way, do you notice the tense in verse 12? Have a look. It teaches us. That is the present tense, right? It's not the past tense. It doesn't say, do you know what? When I became a Christian, I learned a, a, a load of useful stuff, elemental stuff, and now I'm on my way. I crack on. I keep my head down and I guess I'll make it to heaven one day. Present tense means I'm still learning here. I'm still going. Jesus' grace has got more to teach me. So, grace has appeared. It offers salvation and it teaches me. But how? How does it do that? If you're anything like me, you might be sitting there thinking, brilliant, I hear those things. I affirm those things. I just want to know more. Give me a bit more help. Good news. He goes on to give more help. Secondly, second point, glory will appear. Glory will appear, verses 13 and 14. As I said, this is the second great appearing in the Christian calendar when, when the glory of God will appear in Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at verse 13. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm, as I said, I'm pushed this way, pulled this way, and do you see how either way, whichever way I look, whichever way I look on the path that I'm on, I've got my eyes on Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus Christ on the cross, pushing me towards glory. Oh, Jesus Christ returning. Ah, that's where I'm going. Either way, it amounts to looking to my great God and Savior. How does that help me to do what is good? In this case, as we look, think about glory appearing, I look towards the appearing of the glory of God at the end of time. Is that not a, not a description to actually make you quake a little bit when you think about it? I, that's bright. I look towards the appearing of the glory of the immortal, eternal God and I feel really small. I, that makes me cringe. I may be walking this way, but oh, I, I don't know how I'm going to face that. How does that help you do what is good? It's because Paul can't help then going back in verse 14 and thinking, how am I going to face that and survive? That's where he gets to verse 14, do you see? It's because our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who will appear in glory, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. As I look at the second coming of Jesus and I'm aware of what's behind me, I think, I will survive that. I will survive that because of God's grace. Not only survive, I will be actually invited in to come and join the glory. I saw a cartoon pop up on Facebook this week on the, on the ads. Um, and here we go, I think we've got it on the screen. Jesus sitting amongst the superheroes. You know, we've got the Incredible Hulk and Spider-Man, maybe Captain America. And he says, and that's how I saved the world. I don't know how Facebook knew that I was interested in um, Christianity and slightly cheesy cartoons, but um, they seem to know. Mark Zuckerberg knew. And I like it because, of course, it gets right to the heart of it. That is how he saved the world. You see the first three words in verse 14? He gave himself. I don't think there are three denser, more tightly packed, but beautiful words in the entire Bible than that. That's the diamond of the entire Bible. He gave himself to save the world. That's a, that's a commercial description, actually, as it unfolds. In commercial terms, people pay really silly money for things, don't they? I was reading not that long ago about Bernie Eccleston's daughter. You know, Bernie Eccleston, Formula One tycoon, lot of money. Um, he's got two daughters. One daughter bought a bathtub for a million pounds. Wow! Apparently it was made of Amazonian crystal and she had to have the, um, the bathroom joists reinforced in the floor because this thing was so heavy. She said, it's worth it because I spent a lot of time in the bath. I was like, yeah, you'd need to if you spent a million quid on your bath. The other daughter, apparently not to be outdone, bought a handbag. I mean, this, this handbag, only, only £41,000. But she bought 10 of them. 10 of the same handbag just because she wanted them all. As I was preparing this sermon, um, I got a, a sports update on my phone which told me that uh, a football club had just put in an offer of £114 million for a football player that got rejected. People pay ludicrous amounts of money for things in the world that they seem to think are valuable. I think here when we read that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us, we are reading about, and I mean this reverently, the most ludicrous thing that people have ever spent money on in the history of the world. Jesus Christ gave himself for a ragtag bunch of the least impressive humans in the world. That's the church. 
he knew that what he was spending his, his money on was uh, a people who were addicted to sin, who hated him, who didn't really want to be bought at the time at all, and who, unless he took further action, weren't going to do any good at all. And for that, bunch of, that, for that purchase, that product, he paid an infinite amount of money. I mean, I know it's not money, but he gave himself the most priceless thing the universe can afford. The, the eternal son of God, a member of the Trinity, had to come down to earth and become incarnate. Grace appeared. In order to take me to glory, he gave himself. If it were possible, can you imagine marketing Jesus Christ in London today? If you could sell an hour of Jesus' consulting time in the city, I mean, what would someone pay for that? Jesus Christ, an hour of his expertise to help your company or your career. Can you imagine marketing Jesus in healthcare? Let's say, you, you hospital manager, you can have an hour of Jesus Christ's time, he's going to come into your hospital, and he'll probably empty all the wards for you. Wow, yes please, I'll pay for that. Can you imagine marketing Jesus Christ to the United Nations and saying, okay, North Korea, United States, all the rest of you, he's going to come into the headquarters, he'll spend an hour with you, he'll probably sort everything out. How much do you want to pay? Yes, please. I think people would pay for that. If that's what a single hour time slot of the Lord Jesus' time is worth, what's it worth? What's it worth when he gives himself when he gives his entire being on the cross to be murdered, handed over for my sake. Jesus Christ gave gave himself. Okay, two further things about that because Paul can't resist telling us more. Jesus redeems us and Jesus purifies us and then we're done. He gave himself to, first of all, redeem us. And this is uh, slave language. You get redeemed if you're stuck as a slave and you need payment and you need to be got out of it to get released. One of the guys involved in the Tamar ministry here at church told me a story about a slave, a man who was um, in a foreign country. They don't tell you which and they don't tell you his name, but we're told he needed money for his daughter to go to school. So he heard of a job in the UK, got the ferry over here and was picked up at the port in the UK. True story. When he was picked up at the port, they took his ID, his passport, and any money he had, and they put him in a van and sent him to a farm with a couple of other people who had come on the boat. This is in the UK. If he didn't work seven days a week, long hours on the farm, they beat him, so much so that his legs became weak. And um, after a while, he realized, I am a slave here. There's no way I can get back to my daughter. They won't let me get away. I'm a slave on this farm in the UK. He describes watching helplessly one day when he was sold from one man, one owner, to another for 300 pounds. And he just had to watch it helplessly. And then he was taken to another farm. But he said that the buyer, he overheard the buyer saying, he's not even worth 300. I tell you that story because the Bible tells us again and again that slavery is a picture of being human. And we've got to understand what we've come from. That's why we had Exodus chapter 19 read, because um, we're given this vivid illustration in the Old Testament of Israel brought out of slavery, which was a physical kind of slavery, a forced labor. But we're told to understand it in the New Testament here as a redemption price for our sin. Because are you like me, that when you have a, a habit, a sin, something that's got control of you, it calls the shots. It's a slave master that I can't get away from. 
in Exodus 19, which, with that passage that Emma read, we're told that just before God gives him the Ten Commandments and says, you're my people, I've set you free, but I want you to understand where you've come from. We're unable to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions on our own. You see, this is, in fact, what we hear around us day to day a lot of the time. Instagram, I think, is a form of slavery. See if you agree. Young ladies, young women, be really skinny and we'll love you. Young men, be really muscly, look fantastic and we will love you, but you've got to keep being skinny and looking fantastic, otherwise it's going to go away. Twitter, I think, slightly differently, different. It says, um, people, be really funny, witty and incisive, and we will love you. But if you stop, it will go away. You see, it keeps you bound into this process where I have to keep doing good. Do good and we'll love you. Do good and we'll love you. It happens in the workplace when, when they say, do good and we'll promote you. It just keeps you bound into this process. Of course, there's an internal monologue all along that says, I have to keep doing good, otherwise no one will love me. Indeed, God won't love me. Do good and we'll love you. That's enslaving. The, you want to know the result of Jesus um, coming to redeem us? It's freedom. So much so that there's a freedom of knowing you are already loved. We, uh, that is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, accept you. Slave, person that we rescued from slavery. We didn't just grudgingly hand over 300 quid thinking they're not really worth that. We handed over the eternal Son of God in incarnate funeral human form on the cross so that we could redeem you as our own and now we're going to take you to be with us Jesus redeems us and second sub point and finally Jesus purifies us this is is hygiene language if you will it's a sort of ritual temple cleansing sort of word Jesus purifies these people he's redeemed as slaves it's suitable for religious use once you've purified it Jesus is therefore in the business of taking dirty slaves to sin and making them spotless and pure and holy instruments that are suitable for use in his temple. I really like the way one of the students put it when she got baptized in November. One of the students here at church, uh, when we asked her for her testimony, she quoted this line which had meant a lot to her. She said, God loves me just as I am, but he's not finished with me yet. He loves me just as I am. I'm accepted. I've been redeemed, but he's not finished with me. He's going to purify me. That's being eager to do what is good. That is, I think, why we're not just dealing with the family of grace, although that's magnificent. I'm, I'm welcomed and adopted into his family when I'm redeemed. I'm also dealing with the school of grace, which teaches me as I walk forward towards glory how to behave. I got to visit a school recently. Um, a Christian school out in the countryside in the UK. And it was founded about 100 years ago by a, a rich banker called Charles Baring Young, who was a Christian man. And he had a vision for this school, which is still in place today, which was, I'm going to take uh, kids out of the slum, particularly in London. I'm going to take the poorest kids who haven't got any access to education. And I'm going to give them a Christian education in the countryside. And you should see this place. It's beautiful. I mean, he built boarding houses, and, which are like mansions, and um, a classroom and school. And there was a farm they could learn to farm on. And there were teachers who loved them. And there was boarding house families in which they could be involved. His, his vision was to take these kids, dirty, slum-dwelling kids, out of there, put them in a Christian environment in a school where they could have an education. 
It is, if you like, a school of grace. It's a picture also of what Jesus Christ does to us. I'm going to take you, I'm going to put you in a family where you're accepted, but now I'm going to teach you how to do what is good. Which means, I think, the result of Jesus purifying us, remember the result of Jesus redeeming us was freedom, the result of Jesus purifying us is, is growing. I'm always learning as a believer. Sometimes I'm unwitting, sometimes I'm unwilling, and sometimes I'm eager. This is just the last thing I'll say to you. Um, sometimes I'm unwilling. That is, I, I don't necessarily realize I'm being purified. Uh, I wouldn't have a clue if you asked me. Um, I think that's probably true of the, the, the Christians in Rome in AD 251. You know? Do you realize that Jesus is purifying you and he's going to teach the whole church about all of this? And this is your process of being made more like Christ. Oh, no, not a clue. I'm just doling out some bread every day. Ah. But I'm unwitting. I think often in life I'm totally unwitting about the things the Lord might be doing in me through the muck and the mire, through the trials and the tribulations. I'm unwittingly in the school of grace and he is leading me on to glory. Sometimes I'm just completely unwilling though. I'm unwitting, sometimes unwilling. Sometimes just don't want to be purified. I'm clinging on to something that might be a sin or a habit or a person. It might be a job or a status or a dream. It might be a website or an app. It might be a rivalry that I'm quite enjoying. Clinging on to this thing and I'm totally unwilling to let go of it and therefore I don't want to be purified. I don't want to change. Do you see how even then I'm still on the track to glory. That's the beautiful thing about grace. He knows what I'm like. He's pushing me from the incarnation. He's pulling me towards glory. I need to repent of that thing and let go of it. But he loves me just as I am. Don't underestimate your great God and Savior. That's the way he's described here. If indeed this is all about him, if I can't even take my eyes off him, whichever way I look, he will prize open even the coldest hand that believes in Jesus Christ. And he will get you there. I'm unwitting, I'm unwilling, and finally, sometimes, I'm eager. Sometimes I know what the pure thing to do is, and I do it. And sometimes, and this might be the case with you this morning, there's something on my heart that God has put there that I'm actually eager to do. There's a new spiritual regime I want to dive into. There's new devotions I've got lined up for the family. There's, there's someone in my life who I'm really eager to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's some sin that I want to open my grip of as I press on towards glory. And there's an eagerness to do what is good. And that's the end of the paragraph. That's the end of the chain. And I look forward to more and more and more of that as I'm enrolled in the school of grace and I learn more about him. Eager to do what is good. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we think about our own lives, that feels like a mountain to climb sometimes. It feels like a really hard, tight grip we have on the things that we don't want to change. But if there's ever anyone who is going to change us, it's the one who redeemed us from sin, who appeared in grace and will take us to glory. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great God and Saviour. And we pray that as we fix our eyes on him, even when we're unwilling or unwitting, you would please take us all the way to glory in the school of grace through our Lord Jesus. 
And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.